0: Hi, and welcome back to The Voice of Healthcare for November 2017, Episode 7. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based here in Nashville, Tennessee. My co-host on The Voice of Healthcare is Dr. Matt Cebulski. Matt, say hello. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back, Bradley. Matt, great to be back with you. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, we've got a great, very interesting guest today, Dr. Jim Rickards. Jim, say hello.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us. And uh, very interesting stuff you're doing, work you're doing, um, but I want to lead... I with a plug for your book, which I really, really like. It's called Our Health Plan, Community-Governed Healthcare That Works. It's on Amazon. It was released just a few months ago. We're going to include a link in the show notes to the book, as well as on Voice First FM, so people can check that out. Jim, let's just start off. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, so
1: I'm a radiologist by training, meaning I'm a physician who interprets medical imaging studies. And about six to seven years into my career, I was becoming frustrated because I was getting to know my patients too well. And I think you might be taken aback at first and go, well, wait a minute, you're a doctor. Aren't you supposed to know your patients well? And I'd say, well, yeah, if you're a family practice doc or maybe a pediatrician, you should know everything there is to know about your patients. But as a radiologist, the way I practice medicine is with high cost imaging exams that actually expose people to radiation that can lead to an increased risk of cancer down the line. So... I was frustrated because I lived in this small community in Oregon, and we had a number of so-called frequent flyers, and that's somewhat of a pejorative term we use in the medical industry. But, you know, these were folks that would come in every week with vague complaints to the emergency department, and we'd do the full workup, and oftentimes it resulted in a CT scan or some other high-cost imaging study. And what I realized is that even though I was doing everything correctly, interpreting the imaging exams, and my colleagues in the emergency department, emergency department were doing everything right, on their end, so much of our health is not determined by the medical care we receive. Only about 10% of our health is determined by medical care. The majority is determined by other things like our behaviors, our socioeconomic status, our access to transportation. And these were all areas that I didn't have any influence or ability to impact. And so if I really wanted to improve the health of individuals or the health of the population in my community, I needed to find a way to get out there and help impact those other determinants of health. And and the traditional medical model is not set up to allow us to do that. Well, in the state of Oregon, we were changing that about five years ago, developing community governed health care plans called CCOs or Coordinated Care Organizations for the Medicaid population. And I helped start one of these organizations. And, And basically what these organizations do is they combine payment for not just medical care but also behavioral health care dental care and other services like non-emergency medical transportation under one roof under one umbrella into one organization with a defined budget set of metrics that they have to meet and so i helped start one of these organizations and basically the book is a, is the story of how I helped create this organization and really the power of of the organization and, and its ability to help control costs, but also improve access and, and increase quality of care for the Medicaid population. But these are things that could also be translated to commercial
0: population and Medicare as well. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, so we're, so we're going to include a link to the book on Amazon, as I mentioned, in the show notes as well as in the uh, – description information on voice first fm for the show and talking about coordinated care models and how you're working to influence behavior and things of that nature you're getting you're broadening the scope of a traditional healthcare effort there's a whole lot of intersection with that in my mind with voice technology and when i say voice technology of course i'm referring to you know some of the mainstream technologies like Amazon's Alexa, Google Home, Apple, Siri, uh, you know, those voice assistants that are being created by the the big players, but also the countless efforts of many smaller companies. I was on vacation last week and I was trying out this personal trainer that's AI-based called V from this company that'll be at the Alexa conference next month. Shameless plug, by the way, the Alexa conference is coming up next month in Chattanooga, Alexa conference.com. But, uh, you know, equipment like that to other voice technology that's maybe B2B or, you know, hospital to hospital or healthcare organization to healthcare organization. And my question for you is, just in general, do you share the optimism that that I have and many others have, Dr. Spolsky has, on what voice technology and voice-first technology can bring to healthcare? Or are you a little bit more skeptical?
1: Well, I think in general, I'd say I'm very optimistic that technology in general can help um, advance healthcare, improve quality, decrease costs. You know, with the coordinated care model that I was involved in, the, the governance structure of that was was crucial to advancing uh, healthcare improvement at the local level because our governance structure allowed for not just, you know, physicians and hospitals and traditional The traditional medical side of the healthcare house to be involved in in developing the vision, but also folks from the public health department, from the behavioral health sector, from dental care organizations. And so we were able to bring all these different sectors of of healthcare together to help develop a a vision and, and, and a set of uh, priorities for how we want to improve health at the local level, but you know, I think a lot of our efforts really did look to technology to help us, you know, advance healthcare. One one of the things that we did, for instance, or one of the challenges we identified was the fact that for our twenty five thousand members, we did not have a local dermatologist. Our members had to drive over an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes to see a dermatologist for specialty skincare. So we identified this, and what we did was we leverage technology. You know, i have been practicing teleradiology my whole career. Basically, that means that I pull up a picture, the picture happens to be a CT scan or an x-ray, and I apply my knowledge and skill as a physician to interpret that image and turn it into words in the form of a radiology report. Well, the practice of dermatology, diagnosing and treating skin conditions is very similar. Most of the time, dermatologists can just look at a skin condition and they know what it is. They don't need to do a physical exam. They need minimal in terms of the clinical history. So what we did was we identified dermatology access to the problem. We saw that teledermatology was a growing field. So we went out and contracted with a national teledermatology provider named Dermio. We placed them in our network and then we purchased iPads and put those in the 15 of our primary care clinics. So now if a Medicaid member went to a primary care clinic, instead of having to travel that hour and a half to see the dermatologist, the primary care clinic could simply pick up the iPad, log into the the Dermio Secure website, take a picture, send it off to the teledermatologist. And within 24 hours, the diagnosis and treatment Plan would be sent back. We opened up some so called Q codes to allow for the primary care providers to bill for the little bit of work they were doing on their end to help facilitate the consult, and then also negotiated a reduced rate for the dermatologist services, less than what we'd pay if they were seeing the patients in a brick and mortar setting. So, you know, the point there is that. We were able to come together as a community, use our governance structure to identify a problem, identify a solution, and implement it. Unless the CCO would have been there, we would never have had this teledermatology solution in 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 Yamhill County where we started the CCO. And so I think that that community-governed healthcare could look to other technology solutions, such as the voice ones you're speaking to, to help solve some other issues around access.
2: Uh, Excellent. The other uh, question that I think comes to mind for me when you look at the CCO, is another topic that I believe is uh, really near and dear to you, um, especially regarding some of your work described in your book. But, uh, you know, when we have high levels of folks that are receiving Medicaid uh, and are, um, you know, chronic condition patients, technology like voice language is, you know, hypothetically a very useful tool to keep them connected, engaged, and offer them access they couldn't normally get With that work with the CCO and Medicaid patients, there is also some thoughts about challenges regarding sophistication of the patient as well as compliance, um, understanding how to take care of various parts of their illnesses uh, without that one-on-one human emotional interaction. Um, What thoughts come to mind that were successful in that CCO with Medicaid patients that you think might translate well with someone who's at the home? Uh, utilizing a tool with voice language and an AI, for example?
1: You know, early on in the CCO, one area of opportunity we identified to improve upon was the level of patient activation that our members have. So patient activation is this notion that individuals have the knowledge, skill, and ability to manage their own healthcare issues. Those could be acute issues or they could be chronic issues. And it turns out you can actually objectively score someone's level of patient activation it's the so-called pam score patient activation measure out here in oregon a researcher at oregon health sciences university judith hibbert has done a lot of work around this and essentially what's come out of the work is is this simple one through four scoring system for the patient activation levels so basically if you're a four you're highly activated you know you have a disease you know how to manage it you probably know more about it and how to better manage it than your provider but if you're a one on the score, then you might not know you have have a disease. You might not know, for instance, you have diabetes, and then you certainly don't know how to you know, test your blood glucose level. You don't know the most effective medications. You don't know about exercise and diet. And so in the CCO, we saw that there was this kind of spectrum of sophistication among our members when it came to managing their own conditions, a spectrum of activation. And you know the research has shown that the, the higher level of activation you have, the better health outcomes you have, and the lower costs you incur. So as a community-governed healthcare plan, it was really our goal to try to get all of our members as highly activated as possible. So we purchased a, a screening tool through a company out here in, in Portland, and we embedded the screening tool in a team of community health workers that we employed. And when these community health workers would engage a member for a variety of reasons. Maybe it was because they had a chronic uh, health condition, or maybe they had a large number of visits to the emergency department. They would conduct one of these uh, PAM assessments or patient activation measurement assessments, grade them or score them on that one through four scale. And then they were able to use a set of coaching tools to help improve their level of activation to basically train them to become more activated. And when I think about voice technology, I think that, you know, while our our solution was to use the community health workers to perform the assessment and to do the coaching, I think that there's probably an opportunity for, for voice technology, like you're describing, to kind of to, to do that work to or to even supplement what those community health workers are to help, you know, educate members, to encourage them, to coach them, and to activate them so that they can have better health. So I, I think that might be an opportunity for, for voice, uh, voice technology.
2: Yeah, that's one of the first things that comes to mind when I hear you mention this PAM score about being one to four is shifting those lower activation patients to a little bit more active folks. Now, some of the work that we've been putting together at Ionia involves. Um, you know, using behavioral influence and persuasion to move patients through a scale similarly to that, um, that gets them engaged. Uh, Some of that even includes comparing them and connecting them to other patients with a similar disease. Um, But, you know, when you look at the technologies like this, and you look at a CCO model that you're proposing, does cutting the costs end up being something that takes away, you think, from quality of care? And does language like, uh, excuse me, does technology like voice language tend to make up for that
1: uh, loss of uh, of quality if there really is any? Yeah. So maybe to back up a little bit, the main, one of the main reasons why we developed this coordinated care model and these CCOs here in Oregon was because our, our Medicaid budget was just unsustainable. About six years ago, we had a 1.9 billion with a B uh, budget shortfall in our Medicaid budget. And, and typically when states go to try to fix shortfalls like this, they employ a combination of three strategies in the Medicaid space. One, they'll decrease provider reimbursements. Well, that doesn't usually work in the long run because that just decreases access to care and people you know, wind up not getting the preventative services they need or if they have chronic conditions, those are unmanaged and when they do come to care, they're more expensive. Um, The second strategy is to decrease the number of individuals eligible for Medicaid benefits. Well, that wasn't going to work in Oregon because we were actually going to be an expansion state and we were going to go from 600,000 Medicaid lives to over a million. And then the third and final strategy that is typically employed is to decrease the number types of uh, benefits and services are covered. So certain surgeries might not be paid for anymore or certain diagnostic tests. Well, we were already pretty limited in what we covered here in Oregon. And to shorten our, our list of covered services anymore wasn't going to be reasonable and might actually wind up um, harming more people than it did hurting. And we probably weren't going to get approval to shorten that list of services from the federal government. So our our decision was to create this fourth path of creating these coordinated care models these community governed healthcare plans these CCOs where we combined all the payments for healthcare services under one roof and had them be community governed. Well when the CCOs came together you know when they went out and started contracting with providers they didn't try to employ any of those three traditional strategies to save costs. You know, they were of the mindset that they wanted to improve care and that improvement in care would then result in cost savings. And then those cost savings then could be put back into the system to support transformational programs to support better quality care. And so what I'm getting to is, you know, one of the big thrusts of the CCO model was to encourage all of our primary care clinics to become recognized medical homes or certified patient-centered primary care homes. These are basically primary care clinics on steroids. So we now have in our state more than 90% of all of our Medicaid members enrolled in a recognized medical home. We've done some research and seen that individuals enrolled in a recognized medical home under our our Oregon certification process called the PCPCH, or patient-centered primary care home program, that they incur a 13 to 1 ROI, meaning for every dollar spent on primary care in one of our recognized medical homes, there's $13 in savings elsewhere in the system. So savings from decreased hospitalizations, decreased surgeries, decreased radiology, utilization, et cetera. And so really our focus for cost savings has been to really improve the quality of care Not to decrease the reimbursement rate. And so, you know, to your question around voice technology, I think the question is how can voice technology be, you know, incorporated into, you know, either self management by members or facilitating, um, you know, provider member or patient communication to result in cost savings? And how could, you know, um, healthcare systems or, or CCO type models? you know, pay for and support the use of that voice care technology that's been shown to improve quality, which then results in decreased costs.
2: Right. That's that's a good point. I, I think that something else comes to mind as far as being able to uh, uh, understand these, these uh, breakthroughs in primary care, which would be what are some of these breakthroughs that you get with a little bit more of a coordinated locally local government coordinated um, care plan for Medicaid patients? I mean, are there some, were there some notable breakthroughs that you thought to yourself, you know, now we've really, we are cooking with gas here. We've made some real changes um, to how these people are engaging with their own care or how we're engaging with them.
1: Yeah. I think that one of the big breakthroughs is if you look at communities, there's a lot of health care going on, but it's not all medical. And this gets to my point earlier that, you know, only 10% of our health is impacted by the medical care we receive. The rest of it is, you know, our social circumstances, uh, what public health does. And, you know, our big breakthrough was figuring out, well, how do we connect the medical community or the primary care community even with other resources in the community in a meaningful way? And I'll give you an example of one way we did that. We had a uh, local fire department that had some paramedics and, and ambulances that had some extra bandwidth and also had a bit of a, a gap in their in their budget. So they were able to do more work, and they were looking for an additional revenue source. Well, when we looked at where our costs were, and, and where our utilization was with the Medicaid population, a lot of it was around ED utilization. So our Medicaid members didn't have access to transportation. They would call 911. They would go to the emergency department for, you know, pretty routine things that they could have seen a primary care provider for. So we had these paramedics. We had these ambulances, which were going out regularly, who knew who our Medicaid members were, who were utilizing the emergency departments. And so instead of, you know, having this reactive care model where, The paramedics would just go out when they got a 911 call. What we did then was to create, instead a proactive model, a so-called paramedicine program, where what we did was we paid the paramedics to go out to members' homes who had a certain number of emergency department visits. We set the threshold at six visits per year. So if you had six or more emergency department visits per year, we would send out the paramedics in a non-emergent fashion to meet with you in your home to do things like a safety check to make sure you're living in a safe, stable, secure environment and that your environment's not contributing to your emergency department use, to do medication reconciliation, to look around your house, to find all those scattered pill bottles from the multiple emergency department visits or multiple hospitalizations that have never been organized and help you put those in one place and figure out when you need to take those. To do things like lab draws. So maybe you have a chronic condition and you need your you know, hemoglobin A1C check to manage your diabetes long-term. So they will go out and do that. So what we then so when we now have this paramedicine program where we proactively go out, work with our high utilizers, and those paramedics then become a bridge or a conduit between the member and and the primary care clinic because oftentimes you know the primary care clinics they're not set up to go out to people's homes but if they need help with a medication reconciliation if they need uh, help with a health risk assessment they could leverage those paramedics to go out there in the community who already had the relationship with these high utilizers to do that work. So, you know, your your question around what was a breakthrough, I think it was that type of breakthrough figuring out, well, how do we connect these different resources in the community that are delivering healthcare? They're not all medical, but how do we combine them and pay for them and then, you know, capitalize on on what they have to offer and then generate better health outcomes? And that's what we did with that, that paramedicine program.
0: There's a number of companies that are looking at the healthcare space and this intersection with voice technology and voice-first computing um, and approaching it from the standpoint of improving mental health. Um, as opposed to physical health, you know, so many people just don't have someone that they can have a conversation with, m- much less anything else down the line. They don't, you know, so they they get heard and, and no one knows and they decide, you know, they get discouraged, don't want to take their medicine. Uh, there's no one there to encourage them. Um, there's a lot of thought right now that these voice assistants can help alleviate this problem to some degree. And my question for you is, In the coordinated care model that you have gotten some experience with, uh, there's no doubt that that had a a positive impact on the mental health of so many of these folks. Share with me uh, what you saw with that and just the importance of that.
1: Yeah, so a a big focus of the CCOs is not just to coordinate the uh, management of financial risk or you know, the, the budget associated with paying for medical, behavioral, and dental care services. So to manage that and pay for it in aggregate, but also to make sure that not just the payment is integrated and managed, but the delivery is actually integrated and managed. So at the CCO level, when it comes to uh, so-called physical behavioral health integration, one of the first things that we did, along with another number of other CCOs was to actually physically integrate behavioral health services with physical or medical health services at the primary care setting in the primary care setting. So basically what that means is the CCO used some of its revenue to actually support the hiring of behaviorists. So these are uh, a level or, you know, doctorate level psychologists, um, Uh, we we would pay for their their hiring and placement within primary care clinics. And so the behaviorist then could work side by side in the single location with the primary care docs. So if somebody did come in with with the behavioral health issue that the primary care doc wasn't um, comfortable managing or didn't have the experience managing, or maybe the, the primary care provider identified a behavioral health issue, um, there was a behaviorist there in the clinic and a so-called warm handoff could be made or you know, during that same physical health visit, if the behaviorist was available, they could then also see the, the, the member and, and deliver some behavioral health services. And, and the value of that then is that all the, the information around this patient's health is at one place. It's, in one, it's all occurring in one physical location. But then more importantly, when the EMR is used for documenting what they have, it's all in the single EMR. And so, you know, some examples of of how this plays out is say someone comes in for a a cough, okay? Well, because the CCOs are focused on this behavioral health, physical health integration, one of the the metrics that this track is the performance of a so-called expert exam, which is a screening and a brief intervention and referral for treatment. It's essentially a drug and alcohol uh, screening questionnaire. So if someone came in for a cough, or if you came in for any medical issue, you were also asked to complete this expert exam to assess your risk for substance abuse. Well, if you if you screened positive, because you were in a clinic while you were there to see a medical doctor, but because there was a behavioral health provider there, after you were done seeing the medical doctor or the physician, they could have you immediately see the behavioral health provider to do a further assessment to evaluate your risk for substance abuse, and then they could, you know, start to build a relationship with you, and and they were better equipped to help you connect with community resources or even provide you with ongoing counseling than the physician it was equipped to who was seeing you for the cost. So because the physical health and behavioral health care was integrated at the clinic level, you know, those types of handoffs could occur and and better care would happen as a result of that.
2: Yeah. So um, as a psychologist, I totally agree that uh, connecting those two services is is paramount to having a successful, healthy community. Uh, We talk a lot in the United States about uh, mental health parity, but uh, to your point earlier in the conversation where, um, you know, 10% of your health care is, is the, you know, the clinical work and the medicines that you take uh, and the examinations that are made, uh, largely, um, you know, emotional health and mental well-being is ongoing and having a psychologist on hand to work with the patient and the provider uh, in a warm handoff, as you describe it, is excellent insight on y'all's part. So that uh, hats off to you for that. Your model in the context of um, the opioid epidemic, for example, might be really useful for others to hear about how you might handle addiction, how you might handle uh, patients that are either at risk for an opioid addiction or who are actively fighting one. Was there any work done during this development and then maybe afterwards that you can share with our audience and with us about how you might have handled um, addiction, specifically opiate addiction, with this particular model? I'm working with a few health systems that are struggling with this, but I'm really curious to know what your hands-on experience has been with this epidemic and maybe any breakthroughs or any Insights that you've had uh, with this model that might be useful for others to hear.
1: Yeah, so thanks. And we we did quite a bit of work around opioids and the opioid epidemic at both the local CCO level and now are doing more at the, the state level. So, you know, when I first started with the CCO, we really wanted to work with our provider community to have them give us some insight into what they thought some of the, the problems were regarding delivering access to effective healthcare and then what some of the bigger health issues were. And so, you know, one thing that the, the, our local providers, our local physicians and um, other providers wanted us to do was to look at the medications that were being prescribed to Medicaid members. And, and the idea initially was that you know, there was a feeling that perhaps there wasn't as much generic drug utilization as there could be. So we work with our third-party administrator when we pull all this data on, on uh, medication prescribing amounts and costs, et cetera. And I remember before actually reviewing the report, I was thinking that, you know, I was going to see this report and I was going to see a lot of medications prescribed for depression, for diabetes, for high blood pressure, for COPD, some of the more um, you know chronic conditions that are oftentimes associated with the Medicaid population. And you know I was thinking that's what the report would show. And then I was thinking that I would you know, see a lot of opportunities where we could use more generic drugs for treating you know, depression or, or high blood pressure, et cetera. Well, to my total surprise, when this report came back, it turns out that our top 10 prescription drugs by uh, number of prescriptions written and also volume dispensed were all opioids. And I was just, you know, blown away. The reality was that we had a lot of chronic pain. That's, that's you know? really unbelievable. That's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and we were really taken aback. And so and this was something that we shared back with the provider community, you know, it turns out the problem with medications isn't that there's not enough generics being written. The problem is too many opioids are being prescribed. And it seems like that's maybe really the only thing being prescribed. And so we need to do something about this because it's a particular problem for the Medicaid population.
2: Yeah, you know, we we had an interesting conversation um, at Ariadne Labs um, this last week, which is Atul Gawande's lab in Boston and Cambridge. And uh, there was an uh, epidemiologist uh, in a presentation on the opioid epidemics who basically stood up and said, you know, this isn't a problem in Western Europe. This isn't a problem in Japan. Uh, This is a problem in the United States. Um, He kind of pressed the physician making the presentation and said, listen, it sounds like the medical community in the United States are the pill pushers here. Now, if you were giving that presentation, how would you respond to him?
1: Well, I would say that, you know, oftentimes physicians aren't left with a lot of options to help treat people. And they're not um, given the the team-based support they need and, and the data they need to help effectively manage individuals or populations, and that's what we saw in Yamhill County. So really, the, the reason why our top 10 medications were all opioids is because, quite frankly, there weren't other options available to treat chronic pain for the Medicaid members. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, chiropractic therapy, acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, nutrition, these were not covered services that were available to the Medicaid population when we had such high prescribing rates of opioids. So, you know, in light of that, what else is a primary care doc to do when someone comes back continually with chronic low back pain and they don't have options for treatment available to them other than opioids. So I think that the benefit structure in large part was was creating this issue with the providers. They just weren't left with any other tools. That's since changed. Now all those other services I just described are available to cre- treat at least chronic back pain. But you know with that so what we also did in in the CCO that I helped with was we gave the providers, another tool to help manage their members. We created what was called a persistent pain program. So because we identified this as a community-wide program, we started this 10-week program that Medicaid members with chronic pain and whether or not they're using opioids or not could be referred to. And the program really had three components. One was an educational component where we educated individuals about what chronic pain was, what can trigger it, and how they could self-manage it. Two, it had a uh, behavioral health component where some counseling was provided to individuals to help them understand, you know, the personal level, what might be causing their pain, you know, does it uh, perhaps not have a physical etiology? Is it maybe, you know, a result of PTSD or depression? And then three, there is a movement component to the program where individuals were taught Tai Chi and yoga and and other methodologies to help self-manage their pain. So, you know, we were able to develop this, this program, this tool for providers to refer members to that had persistent pain. So instead of reaching, you know, for the prescription pad, the providers could reach for a referral sheet and send them to the persistent pain program. But then with that, we also were able to provide the um, physicians and clinics with data. We were able to show them, okay, here's your list of members who are on opioids and here are the doses. And then we also developed a set of community prescribing guidelines with an upper level threshold of what is, you know, the the appropriate maximum amount of opioids that should be prescribed to individuals. So there's this concept of MEDs or morphine equivalent doses where you can essentially, you know, uh, look at any type of opioid and 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 set it to a standardized threshold. The MED convert it to that standard number, and and we set it MED level of 120 initially. It's since come down, but we were able then to, to share with providers data showing, okay, here are your members on opioids. Here's here's who's above 120 MED, and then we also developed a. Um, a group to help assist members develop taper plans and identify other resources in the community that the members could be referred to to help manage their chronic pain. So basically, you know, we created a, a number of tools other than just, you know, opioids that were there to help providers uh, help individuals manage their chronic pain. And I think without that, you, you know, we're, we're not going to make a lot of headway with the opioid epidemic, but but we're seeing these types of tools uh, be developed ac- across the nation. I think we're starting yeah, to Yeah, start.
2: I, I totally agree with you that it's going to take um, some introspection and some synthesis of multiple modalities to really heal us from this epidemic. And I'm glad to hear that you've made some
0: progress there. The book is called Our Health Plan, Community-Governed Healthcare That Works. There will be a link in the show notes as well as on the web. Jim, thank you very, very much for your time today. And Dr. Sibolsky, thank you for your time as well. Yeah,
2: thanks to be here. And Jim, it was fantastic conversing with you. Thanks for your really comprehensive answers.
0: Yeah, great speaking with you. Thanks. For The Voice of Healthcare, thank you for listening. And until next time.